invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 13, or if you're using a Red Pew Bible, it's on page number 926, 926. Nine hundred and twenty-six in the Red Pew Bible, Matthew thirteen, verse forty-four. I'm going to start back with just the last sentence, in verse forty-three, and then just read these two parables. I call them gem parables. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Father, as we hear these Parables explained, unraveled this morning. I pray that our hearts would be receptive to what we hear, that we would have ears to hear. And I ask, Lord, that you'd work deeply within our hearts to cause us to love you, to love your word, to be willing to surrender our own ambition for You, and that we would prioritize You above all things in this world. We ask this in Your precious name we pray. Amen. Antiques Roadshow has been 27 seasons in the making. I can hardly believe it started in 1997 in America, but actually it was even going on before that in the UK. The UK had their own version that began in the 1970s, but if you've never ever seen an episode, you can kind of almost imagine what it might be like. You have big exhibition hall, and you have people coming in with all of their little antiques, uh, grandma's treasures. They're hoping to find that big one that will, like, you know, maybe make them well off for the rest of their lives. And uh, that that search for that hidden treasure in the attic you know, is kind of what moves the whole thing along and anticipation. Well, in 2019, there was a gentleman who brought with him a a painting that had been in his family for over 90 years. It had been given to his great-grandmother by Norman Rockwell. And the appraiser said, well, you know, this, this Rockwell is called The Little Model. It was a cover painting for Collier's magazine, and And after they learned the history of uh, Norman Rockwell and paintings that he did, the man was told that Rockwell's original, which this was an original, uh, was consistently in those days bringing in at least six figures, maybe around $500,000. And the man laughs nervously and says, you know, I better get some more insurance. I don't know, what would you do? 
What would you do if you had a treasure like that? Would you keep it or would you sell it? How many would sell it? Oh, come on, it's grandma. You're not going to sell grandma's prized treasure, are you? Come on. I mean, I'd hate to find out a family heirloom was an actual treasure in some ways because I'd be divided with, do I keep it or do I sell it? Um, what, who am I kidding? I'd sell it. Just kidding. But making choices or trade-offs are what we do in life. It's how we navigate, and we make choices to sacrifice for other opportunities. And this is the basis for Jesus' two parables that he presents here. And when faced with a decision, what a person chooses really reveals a lot about their own priorities in life and where their faith is. It's actually kind of interesting how Jesus uses basic economic principles here to teach us about entrance into the kingdom of heaven. All of life in some way is actually economic because we all don't have enough time in life that we have to make choices. We don't have enough all the money resources that we need. We have to make choices how we allocate and how we trade opportunities that come before us. We don't have inexhaustible resources, and we only have one life to live. And Jesus understood this basic economic truth of limited resources when he said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said this, Matthew 6, verse 24, he said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And in this life, we have to make choices. We cannot have both of these things. We cannot choose, for example, life. We cannot choose all of life and all of God. We have to choose one or the other. We will either take the narrow road that leads to eternal life, or we will take the broad road that leads to destruction. There's like an economics of life and death that we all experience. And as a way of living, Jesus is calling us to place our trust and our love exclusively in Him. If we choose to take hold of Him tenaciously by faith, He will give us everything that we need and desire. He will give us life, and He will also give us eternal life. And in this respect, the parables here are laying before us a choice. What kind of choice and how do people navigate the opportunity makes all the difference. And laying before us is like a choice, and what we're talking about is conversion. We're talking about conversion, of leaving everything else behind and embracing Jesus Christ exclusively. Now, the word conversion is increasingly being co-opted by the business world and by marketers, talking about recruiting tribes of people and converting them into your brand. And as I hear these things being used, it just completely, uh, it drives me nuts because they're co-opting something that for years and years and years and years, this word has always been associated with spiritual conversion. Uh, And so, Conversion actually occurs when we see that the reward 
for embracing Christ is greater than the cost required to obtain it, that's when a conversion takes place. And spiritual conversion occurs when we see that Jesus Christ is worth everything and we're willing to trade off all of life, as it were, and give ourselves completely to Him. That is a conversion from one way of life to another way of life. And the work of the Holy Spirit is certainly in the mix, causing us to perceive that Jesus is greater than everything else that this world might offer us. And these two parables, Jesus is showing us that to enter the kingdom of heaven, it requires that you are spiritually converted to enter into the kingdom of heaven. This shows us what spiritual conversion looks like, and it shows us from two different angles. They're very parallel. They're, they're like two sides of a singular coin. And so the first parable, I believe, is teaching us that spiritual conversion looks like joyful commitment to Christ. So I want to I want to take a little time to reflect kind of like on the plot line of this little parable. I mean, it's just a couple of lines, but there's a great plot line here that shows us what conversion looks like. And so, Jesus uh, begins by introducing us to this concept by saying that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, like a treasure in a field. In other words, God's spiritual rule in the world is like a treasure that is discoverable. It's hidden in plain sight if you would have ears to hear and eyes to see His workings in this world. But once you know it's there, you can't unsee it. It's everywhere. Today, most people would consider a bank a pretty safe place to store something of great value. But that was not the case thousands of years ago. Sometimes pagan temples were used to store caches of, of wealth. But that only works if neighboring tribes and peoples have respect for the gods. They, if they're afraid to walk into that temple and loot it, that's, that's the only way that you might say that that's a safe place. Most people used to hide their treasures in fields when they knew that a raiding culture, a raiding community was coming towards them. Um, and it was really only, um, you know, these treasures would come, be hidden before the, the marauders arrived, and it was possible that if you were defending your own property and the treasure was there, you might not escape battle. You may not live to tell others where that treasure had been hidden, and that secret would die with you. Now, it was rare, but it was common enough that people would be hearing this story of someone hiding a treasure in the field and be nodding their heads and understanding where Jesus is coming from. But whatever this treasure was, whether it was gold, silver, or some precious stones, it was something that was of immense value, and that when the man who came to it found it, 
He had to have it. Now, when Abby and I were first married, one of the best decisions that we personally had ever made was to purchase a fixer-upper. We moved to a suburb in the Toronto area a year after 9-11, and our budget was extremely limited. We had to cash in Abby's 401k just to have something for a down payment, and we found what was truly a fixer-upper. My sister at that time walked through the house with us, and she was horrified at, to think of what we were going to move into. But we saw something that others couldn't see, something of value, and we had to have it. And so Jesus tells a story that's it's like there's this treasure that's hidden in the field, which a man found. How did this man find it? Well, in all likelihood, this man who found this treasure in the field was a simple laborer. He was someone who had been hired to work the field. And he probably would not be a rich man because rich men typically didn't work their own fields. And so this man uncovers the field. Maybe he was plowing. Maybe he was digging. He was maybe preparing the soil, likely on the lower end of the economic spectrum. And that's what's so interesting about this little parable. It's so short, but the emphasis upon that he, he accidentally finds it. It's like the treasure almost reveals itself to him. He's doing nothing really outside of what his normal routine would be to go and work this field. He's like a lot of us. He's going to work. He's raising a family. He's feeding the kids, going to bed, get up tomorrow, do the same thing. And then the kingdom of heaven reveals itself to him, and he's just as he's going about his daily life. And it's a sudden discovery, but now it's calling him to decide. Now that I see it, what do I do with it? It requires him to make an immediate, life-changing decision. There's no turning back now. And the kingdom of heaven is like that. A person going about their life, they're working, they're struggling, and maybe even they're suffering. And what they have been looking for all of their life is now right in front of them. And they didn't even know that they were looking for it. And the story goes on. It says, then he covered it up. Now, that might sound really strange to us, but in a story like this, it kind of makes some sense because he could have done several things. He could have, like, left it uncovered, but then someone else might get it. He could have told the landowner. He could have ignored it. But he realizes what this means. He starts to hatch a plan. He, he, he wants to make sure he doesn't lose it. And he chooses to act in such a way that's aggressive. He can't be passive about this. Now, we might think to ourselves, was this man doing something illegal? In Jesus' day, it was expected that any property owner should know what they have in their land. And so being shrewd, 
He didn't necessarily have to reveal the values that he was attached to that property. And so it says that then in his joy, his imagination started to work. He started to visualize what this would mean for his family, what his family would do, how things would change. And this was joy. It was exuberance. He started to become quite filled with expectation, and it was overflowing. Now, have you ever watched or seen someone win on Wheel of Fortune? What do they do? They just sit there, right? No. <laughs> they jump up and down, right? They hug everyone, even Pat Sajic. Well, maybe not Pat, but they just go, they just get completely, everything starts to click in their minds and it's going 25,000 miles a minute. And they're moved by joy. And they knew, and this particular man who found this treasure, he knew that his life was going to change. You see, joy is that which moves a sinner into the kingdom of heaven. They suddenly realize, this is it. This is what we've been looking for all of my life. Maybe they've tried promiscuity. Maybe they've tried porn. Maybe they've tried wealth. Maybe they've tried substances. Maybe they've tried extreme travel or other activities. But there's a hole in their soul, and when we find the proper size thing to go into their soul, they realize this is what they've been looking for all their life. And in joy, they are moved. And so the story goes on to say that he went, he sold his own property, he sold all that he had, and then bought the field. What was it that enabled the selling? It was the joy. And Jesus, I think we need to recognize, is hid all, all the treasures of wisdom, all the knowledge, and have, we can have all peace with God. That is priceless. That is priceless. And because he was moved to joy, it caused him to change his life completely. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm sure we don't get great details about this guy's backstory or who's even watching him sell all his stuff, but I can imagine that this would cause a lot of people to say, you're off your rocker. Why are you selling all of your stuff to just buy this field? I mean, it might even appear very risky to other people. Why would he sell? This week, I, uh, I saw a hummingbird. It was so beautiful. It wasn't exactly, I'm not that good with a camera. But I walked around the front of our house, and we have these hostas that have these, right now they're in full bloom, they have these purple bells, very thin bells, and they're on this tube riser, the cascading purples. And as I looked and noticed that hummingbird, I, I realized how rapid, how rapid those wings were fluttering. You know, it must take a lot of nectar to keep that little engine going. But you know, the hummingbird doesn't care. It finds, when it has found the nectar it's looking for, 
It doesn't care. It expends a lot of energy. And I believe in a similar way, when a person finds that they have been, what they've been looking for all of their life, it moves them to act. It causes them to realize, this is what I have been looking for my whole life. Very similar to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 36, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You know, maybe this man was thinking to himself, you know, I've been, I've been hungering for something much better in my life. I've been eating a lot of crow these last few years. This is the buy of a lifetime. This is it. And so he acts, and he sells all that he has so that he might have the treasure. And his joy effectively commits him to Jesus Christ. There's no turning back for him. This is not something he wants to put off. It requires immediate immediate action. And so, in the first instance here, this first parable, I am seeing Jesus communicate that there there is a joyful commitment that occurs in a person who is spiritually converted. They're brought into a new relationship with Jesus. There is also in the second parable here, I believe, a connection to, and it's like the, the opposite side of the coin, it is the idea of costly renunciation, costly renunciation. Spiritual conversion looks like costly renunciation. Verse 45 and verse 46, let's read that parable again. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, it's very, very similar structure, and it's very closely parallel to the first, but there's a, sh- there's a very subtle shift in emphasis. There is now an implied joy. The first parable talked about it more explicitly. Now it seems more implied and there's a shift in the, ver- in the verbs that are used. There's a switch from go, he, the man goes and sells, but this man went, and instead of sells, he sold. Instead of buys, he bought. And the purpose of these little subtle changes is to emphasize that which stays the same between the two parables. And it's that repeated phrase, all that he has. That is designed to catch the listener's attention. It's static. That's something that didn't change between the two parables. And the treasure and the pearl are are outwardly passive. They're not really acting. They're just sitting there. They cause a visual effect upon the person. And the man who sees them is visually awakened by them, and he decides instinctively, it's the treasure telling him what he ought to do. He doesn't even have to hardly think about it. He goes and he sells all that he has. And so I have a couple of questions here because some of us who have grown up hearing the gospel taught from a Protestant perspective, we might 
think about this in terms of works and grace. And we might ask ourselves, is Jesus asking us to trade something as if it were a work in order to receive something that in all, all that we've ever heard is, is grace? And so the first question that I want us to ask ourselves as we look at this parable is, 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 is renunciation contrary to grace? And notice, I think, it's important to recognize that Jesus doesn't lead with renunciation. He leads with joy. Why does He do that? Because joy is motivated by grace. We are saved by grace alone through faith. But doesn't renunciation imply a cost, an exchange? Well, it it does but it's not an equal exchange. Jesus Christ, who is God, who is God and introduces us to our Heavenly Father, treats us much better than we could ever deserve. And what you see when you see Christ, you see Him as a treasure worth having, the worth giving up everything else for, because they're infinitely less important. And so we're very willing to make the exchange, because let's not fool ourselves. If we're giving up, we're not doing it on an equal basis. Christ is giving us eternal life freely, and it is of such infinite value, nothing that we give up even compares with it in the least bit. We have filthy rags that we exchange for the righteousness of Christ. Even the preamble to the Ten Commandments, there is a call to recognize God as supremely valuable because of His grace and His mercy. The Ten Commandments are introduced with the memory that Jesus, God says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, did you notice that God says, this is what I have done. Therefore, it makes all the sense in the world that you do not worship any other gods. He's appealing to us on the basis of His grace and mercy to redeem us and make a way of salvation available to us. And so, when Jesus Christ is the visual treasure, when we see Him for all of His worth, all of His glory, we don't have to be told what to do. We don't have to have a pastor stand up and say, These are the things that you should be doing, folks. Because when we see the beauty of Jesus and He is truly a treasure to us, we don't have to be told twice or thrice. We're willing to give up everything for the treasure that lays there before us. And so I want to ask a question, is the renunciation of our lives equal to Christ? Yeah, there's a cost, but as I said, it's not equal to the joy that's set aside for us in this life or even in the next. If Christ is our treasure, then we're willing to come out of the crowd. We're willing to say, I know Christ has forgiven me of all my sins, and He, he, he wants me to follow Him in this way. 
hallelujah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be right at the head of the line. I know that Christ has forgiven me, and he calls his followers to renounce their pride and be baptized and follow him. Therefore, I will do what he asked me to do. It doesn't matter. I can swallow that because of Christ, I'm now a new person. Jesus asked his disciples and converts to do a little thing. Jesus told his disciples to do many little things. Jesus said, forgive others because you have been forgiven. And a heart that sees Jesus as infinitely superior to everything will say, yes, Lord, I will eat humble pie and be reconciled. I will live at peace with all men as much as it lies within me. Yes, Lord, I will... I will put away my laziness to follow you. I will make time for you each and every day. I will read your word because you've asked me to do so. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know what? I will put my shoes, my kids' shoes out every Saturday night so that they're all ready to go. Your worth has changed my way of life. I'm putting away these old habits. I'm going to follow you with all of my life. How can I not serve you with my time? You gave everything for me. Just show me what to do and I'll do it. See, back in the parable of the soils, there was a minority who did give the Word of God a hearing And they responded with a joy that was not superficial. There were three kinds of soils that were hard, thorny, and rocky. But there was a soil that responded with joy that was not superficial. And in these two small parables, Jesus is showing us what true conversion looks like. And to enter the kingdom of heaven requires that you are spiritually converted, that you are born again. And you've got to take a radical step of action. You've got to sell. You've got to sell all that you have to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And until we do enter the kingdom of heaven, the main goal that we have in this life is to make sure that we are entering the kingdom of heaven. Let me ask you, what is it that is keeping you from responding to Jesus with your whole life? You don't have infinite resources in this life. You can't sustain yourself on your own, with your own two hands. You're not going to be able, how are you going to sustain yourself in the next life? And by choosing Jesus, we gain the whole world. And the blessing is that we don't lose our own souls. We gain the whole world in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.